0: The planet is hot, and it's getting hotter. But raising the planet's temperature is not the only effect that humans have had on Earth. We've cut down rainforests, built large urban areas, combined genes to create new forms of life, and dumped millions of tons of plastic into our oceans. In fact, humans have altered our world so dramatically, some geologists say we've crossed a geologic boundary. So great is our impact, we're no longer in the Holocene, but the Anthropocene, the age of man but maybe this age will be short-lived. Coming up, surviving the Anthropocene on Big Picture Science. Everyone likes to talk about the weather, but perhaps never so much as they do these days. Flooding from the Wisconsin River has caused some residents to evacuate their homes in Portage, Wisconsin. After hearing news of-
1: Some 15 failing. inches of rain over the course of a week has
5: saturated the ground so much, it forced a mudslide in Boulder that split this office building right in half, leaving about 10- On August 4, 2011, this became the driest place in all of the state of Oklahoma. That's never happened before.
1: Blizzard warnings posted from New Jersey to Maine. Most of those governors sending
4: dire warnings. Extreme snowfall, hurricane force winds. It should not be taken lightly. Some
3: extreme Trap weather down events down are becoming state more common. And while weather is not synonymous with climate, and no individual storm is evidence of climate change, as the climate does change, one consequence is more extreme weather events. It's
0: clear that humans are changing the climate. I mean, just look out the window. Cars and factories belching out carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide. That's warming the atmosphere, warming the oceans, and melting the ice. Well, you know that. But the human imprint on Mother Earth is more than producing heat-trapping gases. We've transformed the planet. And Homo sapiens have done so since they invented agriculture.
3: Think of the human imprint. We've built massive cities that glow with artificial light, rerouted rivers to irrigate farms, changed the chemistry of the oceans, littered the land with plastic, paved over grasslands, culled rainforest, and forced tens of thousands of species into extinction. The planet is not what it was before humans arrived on the scene.
0: And some scientists say that for that reason, we've entered a new geologic epoch. Goodbye Holocene, hello Anthropocene. I'm Seth
3: Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. Big Picture Science steps back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this hour, the cumulative change wrought by both. What is the Anthropocene, and can we survive it? Pat, hello, it's it's Molly. How are you? I'm fine. Pat, you are my cousin. I haven't seen you for a while, but I am concerned. You're there in Natick, Massachusetts. Correct. What is it like there?
6: Uh, it's the most snow we've ever seen. And the drifts are, you know, along the side of the road. They can be 7 feet, 8 feet, 12 feet or more. You know, I have to say they've done a really good job of plowing. I can't say that we see pavement, you know, for... 24 hours or 36 hours after a storm. But certainly the roads are passable if you have the correct vehicle and some people are able to go about their business.
3: Now, Massachusetts or the East Coast has been hit with, what, three or four storms, winter storms. Has this indeed been an unusual winter for you?
6: It's an unusual winter in the amount of snow depth, you know, the snow depth that we have, and also uh, the temperatures, which a lot of people sometimes don't talk about as much the temperatures have been particularly cold accompanying those storms. So with each successive storm, you're building onto a previous storm that has not melted down like previous years do. And let's just talk about Boston for a minute because I drive in there every morning. When you drive in there, it definitely looks like something you would see on National Geographic. Cars are buried the roads are single lane, although they are doing their best. I will give them that. So now we have huge traffic pileups, an incredible amount of snow. You can't see buildings or doorways or steps anymore that go into homes or businesses. I will say this. We actually have the equipment to deal with this sort of thing. It's the duration of this time period that is it's making things difficult. We're not talking about one big, huge snowstorm. You're talking about four very large snowstorms. Now you're rolling out machines. Now you're dumping salt four times instead of one time. Now you're clearing roads four times instead of one time. Now you're closing businesses and schools four times instead of one time. It's certainly a, it's a longer duration weather event for us, definitely.
3: Pat, thank you so much for talking to us about the conditions out there on the East Coast. And, and it's really good to hear your voice say hi to the family. I will. Okay. And, and good luck.
6: My love to you. Thank you.
3: My cousin Pat isn't the only one snowed by extreme weather. Recently, there's been prolonged drought in the southwest in California, more intense hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, record rainfall in Britain, record-breaking heat wave in Russia, and these more severe weather events show how vulnerable we are to dramatic departures from the usual.
0: The weather is getting weird. People have always talked about the weather, but as that old chestnut goes, the weather is what you get. But climate is what you expect. That means that individual days may vary in being hot or cold, but climate is the measure of the average temperature, the average precipitation, the average humidity. Well, you get the idea.
3: But when you change the climate, you also change the weather. And sometimes the changes are extreme. And that is making news.
5: I'm Jonathan Amos, and I'm a science writer with the BBC in London. But we spoke to him in San Jose, California, at the
0: annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. John Amos covered many science and technology stories while he was in town.
3: And one of those that quickly spread through the media was the prediction by scientists using tree ring data and computer simulation that the American Southwest and the Central Plains could be on course for a period of super drought or mega drought in the coming decades. It was one of many examples from the conference of how the planet is changing under human influence.
5: What's quite interesting about the study that they have done is to look back in time to then learn about the past to enable them to fully understand what might happen in the future. If you look at all the climate models, they would suggest that the southwestern United States and that Central Plains area, you know, sort of stretching up from North Texas up to the Dakotas is gonna dry. Uh, I guess the big question is to what extent is that going to happen over the course of uh, the next century if we don't stop putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere?
3: In fact, the term that was used, or you used it, maybe it was one that you coined, is mega drought. Is that one that you coined? And, and if you didn't, what is a mega drought?
5: Mega drought, yes. Mega drought is a term that's quite widely used in the, the scientific literature to uh, describe drought conditions that go on for a very long time. So we've been talking currently in California of about three years. A normal drought, a normal cycle of drought, you might see that go on for three, four, five years. You would expect it to be over though within about 10 years. A mega drought on the other hand, that's something that you count in decades. This can go on for a very long time. So imagine conditions in California now stretching on for the next 20 years or so. That would be a mega drought.
3: Are they comparing it, are scientists comparing it to, say, the Dust Bowl of the 1930s?
5: You know, even the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, that's quite short compared to these mega drought conditions. Again, that, that's a kind of drought that you might expect to see, a sort of a natural occurrence. You know, The climate goes up and down, it breathes, doesn't it? And every so often you will get drought conditions. Some of them are worse than others, and that was a particularly bad example. But that was over and done with inside a decade.
3: How can scientists predict such a thing? And how can they separate it out from natural variability? How do we know that this is a result of our changing climate?
5: So this is the interesting thing about this study is that they went and had a look at uh, the past drought conditions. And to do that, they went and had a look at tree rings. Tree rings are interesting because trees grow better when conditions are wet. So the bands, as you cut through the tree, the different growth bands are thicker in years when it's been wetter and conversely very thin when it's been very, very dry. And if you do that in the United States, you've got a record that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years in some cases with these trees. And you can see the big droughts in the past. And there's a period in the other 1100s and the 1200s where you got some very big droughts indeed. And the point about that is that by looking into the past, you get a sense of what is normal and what is extreme. You can then use the computer models that you have today to project forward, but using that information from the past to help you define and to parameterize uh, what it is that you're seeing in the future so that you can understand the variations that you're seeing in the future. And if you do that as this group has done, you start to see some conditions emerge towards the end of this uh, century where you could get conditions that are as bad or, or maybe even worse as we saw in the 1100s and 1200s in North America. So we're talking about droughts that lasted, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And their outcome, their result is that there's an 80% chance of a drought like that occurring in the southwest central plains uh, before 2100. It's a probability it may not happen, it may happen, the probability is that it will happen, an 80% risk.
3: Well, it sounds like you've just made the case for natural variability. If they looked in the past at these tree rings and they saw that there is a cycle of extreme droughts, of these mega droughts, and there was one in the 11th century, and that's how scientists are able to predict that there's an 80% chance we're due for another one, how do we know that our changing climate is playing a role whatsoever?
5: We understand very well now that the physics is well established about Uh, greenhouse gases and the role that they play in the atmosphere. There's no real doubt about that and that science is very very clear. The physics is clear. You can't get away from it. Yes, there is natural variability in the system. Absolutely there is natural variability in the system. But if you then load on top of that the carbon dioxide, the methane, the other greenhouse gases that we're putting in the atmosphere, you're starting to shift the climate in a new direction so that those old movements that we saw start to shift as well. And the more you put into the atmosphere, the greater the risk that you will see the very extreme events. This is what they're saying.
3: And then finally, you were here covering so many stories. Overall, the climate stories that were presented here, was there anything new? Or can you tell us just a couple stories that stuck out in your mind, just generally what some of the news was?
5: I think the story that really came to me most strongly was Uh, This one about plastics, they've calculated now the amount of plastic that we think we're putting in the oceans every year. In the past, we've gone out, we've done surveys, we've tried to count the amount of plastic that's floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You'll know there's big circulatory currents that exist in the great oceans on Earth, and they've been out there and they've tried to calculate just how much plastic is there, and along the shoreline. Hey, you walk along any beach and you'll see plastic bottles, a bit of this, a bit of that, and all the rest of it. I think what was very interesting about this study, and that really hit home for me, was that the calculation that you should be making is the inputs, not look for the outputs, the inputs, and that's what they've done. And they find that 8 million metric tons, about 8 million metric tons of plastic is going into the oceans every year. Now, why is that number so important? If you go and look for the plastic, you find very much less than that, which means that we've been missing the amount of plastic that we've been putting in the oceans. So the next question is, where is that plastic, yeah? So a lot of it is probably sunk. It's gone down to the bottom of the ocean. A lot of it has been weathered and broken up into tiny, tiny fragments, what we call microplastic. And that's bad news uh, because it's persistent and it's of the size that it can be ingested by marine animals, uh, even by plankton. Uh, we're, We're starting to see some of the plastic go in sort of, you know, the really microscopic creatures and plant forms. And so getting these numbers right tells us what we're doing. And then we can start to think about some of the solutions trying to, to stop this because plastic is one of those products, that it's ubiquitous. Next to steel, it is the, you know, the number, after steel, it's the number one material in, in human society. And so its predominance means that we have to take care with how we dispose of it.
3: So it's not a climate change story per se, but it is a story of how humans are changing their environment in a profound way.
5: We're stressing the environment, you know, stressing the environment in a number of ways. You know, if you change ocean temperatures, if you change the acidity of the oceans, that's going to have an effect on the ecosystems. If you then load on top of that, if you introduce into the oceans these substances which uh, are not supposed to be there, like plastic, then that's a further stress on those organisms that live in the oceans. So it all goes together, frankly.
3: Jonathan Amos, thank you for speaking to us.
0: Thank you. Jonathan Amos is a science writer for the BBC in London. Well, those two stories John reported on, the prediction of the mega drought for the U.S. and all that plastic in the ocean, 8 million metric tons, that's like 4 million automobiles.
3: Well, they're just examples of how humans are changing the planet. And that's prompted some scientists to call for a renaming of the epoch that we're in, the Holocene, to the Anthropocene or the Age of Man. Yeah, and epochs are
0: just, you know, periods of geologic history Uh, You get a new epoch when the strata change, the series of rocks changes, what's in them. For example, uh, the Anthropocene wouldn't have woolly mammoths in it. The Holocene would. It's, you know, a new layer in the
3: geologic layer cake. And so what they're saying we might find in the Anthropocene, uh, the evidence of all these changes that we're making to Earth, you'll find plastics, uh, man-made chemicals. You'll find paved roads and radiation from the atomic nuclear tests.
0: And so the geologic layer that we're laying down now might be so distinct that, uh, well, the experts are debating whether to give it a new name.
4: Welcome to the Anthropocene. What we're talking about is not just humans changing the environment, we've always done that. I mean, ants change their environment, termites change their environments. beavers build dam and change their environment. But instead of just burning a bit of forest and planting crops, we are now having a global impact. It's, it's so profound that it's comparable to the kinds of impacts that have affected the Earth through asteroid attacks or through super volcanic eruptions. The kinds of changes that caused the mass extinction of the dinosaurs.
3: Later in the show, hear how that science journalist quit her job to travel all over the world to collect stories from humans who aren't just sitting around, but who are doing something to adjust to the Anthropocene. But first,
0: how the Anthropocene, as self-centered on us as it might seem, could be a cosmic phenomenon. It's surviving the Anthropocene. On Big Picture Science. The term Anthropocene has buzzword status in describing the era that we're living in, one defined by the cumulative changes that humans have made to the planet. But more than that... It's being used with increasing frequency in scientific circles, has appeared in nearly 200 peer reviewed articles.
3: Anthropocene might become an official term. According to the International Union of Geologic Sciences, the IUGS, one of the largest non governmental scientific organizations in the world, and charged with defining Earth's timescale, we are currently in the Holocene epoch, and we've been there for about 11,000 years or more, beginning with the end of the last ice age. But the IUGS has convened a group of scientists to decide by 2016 whether to officially rename the present time that we're in the Anthropocene.
0: It's significant that the idea is even being debated. And yet the case of an organism dramatically reshaping its environment, I mean, that's not new. Small algae did it two and a half billion years ago when they belched out the oxygen that now makes up one-fifth of our atmosphere. So the idea of a single species reworking the planet, it's not new, and it might not even be limited to Earth. Astrobiologist David Grinspoon offers a cosmic perspective on this phenomenon and also says that the growing human influence over Earth doesn't have to end badly. Well, looking at this
1: planet and its long history and all the transitions it's gone through, you can try to step back and look at what's happening to the planet now and genuinely say that earth has never dealt with anything like this species that is changing all these natural systems, changing the atmosphere, launching spacecraft back out into the surrounding space. So it's a new phenomenon and in that sense it represents a branching point in planetary evolution and in terms of the cosmic view we can ask, is this something that happens to planets?
0: So what you're saying is that the experiences that we're having now, that many people think are planet-changing, might, might have changed other planets or might in the future change other planets. Absolutely. Just
1: as we can ponder whether the origin of life is something that has happened elsewhere and we believe it most likely has, although we haven't detected it yet, we can look at this transition now, this origin of a planet-changing civilization and say that perhaps that is also something that happens on planets of a certain age, and then try to abstract what are potentially the universal qualities of that transition, and, and maybe that will affect the way that we see ourselves and what we're going through right now on this planet.
0: Let's get back to this word anthropocene. Seems a little self-referential to me. Uh, it's not yet an official geological term like Mesozoic or Jurassic, although maybe that'll happen. You don't have any hesitation in using Anthropocene?
1: Well, it hasn't become official. It's been proposed as an official stratigraphic term that is, you know, just like these other terms you've heard of, Jurassic and so forth, that refer to a time in Earth history in and in a layer in the rocks. It's not official, but it's become quite widely used, not just by geologists, but now historians and philosophers and others are talking about it. So I, I think it's a useful Term, it's a useful concept to think of ourselves as a geological force, whether or not it becomes officially accepted. And yes, it does seem sort of uh, self aggrandizing. Why should we name a geological period after ourselves? And that is an objection some people have. And yet, if you look at what's happening on this planet, I think you can really honestly say that the planet has never seen a phenomenon like this before. And perhaps by naming it, it, we can start to own up to what we're doing and start to try to think of how we would behave if we wanted to keep this experiment going rather than go out in a a blaze of glory without really considering the future consequences of what we're doing.
0: This experiment being humanity's existence. Exactly.
1: They, the Earth has had species that have changed the planet before. I mean, you know, the cyanobacteria two and a half billion years ago released all this oxygen and caused this environmental crisis. We're not the first species even in, in the quest for energy, which is basically what the, the cyanobacteria were doing. They were they said, oh, solar energy, great. Let's multiply like crazy. And they changed the world and, and led to extinction. So we're not the first even in the quest for energy to, to change the world. But we're maybe the first to be aware of it.
0: All right. Well, let's get to the nitty-gritty of what we're uh, what we're doing here. Everyone's heard of climate change, human-induced climate change. That's usually referred to as an existential threat, I think, to get people's attention. Is it an existential threat? Is it the uh, planet-changing? It's an
1: existential threat to our civilization. I don't believe it's an existential threat to the species because uh, human beings are so widely dispersed on the planet. There's so many different niches. We're so skillful at surviving in different ways that it's hard for me to imagine that anything we're doing now would actually eliminate the human species. But clearly, we are endangering the survival of a lot of other species, and we are endangering the survival, perhaps, of our own civilization, which is a much more fragile thing than a species. So in that sense, we are an existential threat to ourselves.
0: Well, let me posit something else that might be inevitable. We talk about addressing climate change and, of course, you know, uh, reducing carbon emissions and so forth. Those are all on the front burner. But on the back burner are geoengineering projects where we say, you know, let's, let's actually fix this on a grander scale. I mean, when I was a kid, the one thing I often wondered about was, why is it that we never change the weather? We we don't seem to be able to do that. But, you know, maybe in another 50, 100 years, I don't know what, uh, doing something like that is not beyond our capabilities and might not be beyond the capabilities of more advanced societies elsewhere. Maybe, maybe there's a techno fix for this that everyone eventually figures out and adopts.
1: Yeah, well, people are starting to obviously study geoengineering and take it seriously. And my view, it's not just my view, but I, a lot of us think that It would be a mistake to rush into attempting a techno fix because one thing we've learned about the planetary system and and the climate system is that it's very complex. It's more complex than we understand right now. And so in our ignorance to attempt to rush into fixing global warming by just injecting some stuff into the atmosphere so that not as much sunlight reaches the surface, we're asking for it. We're asking for unintended consequences. But in the long run... Not only do I think it's a good thing to study so we have it in our back pocket in case the worst-case scenarios start to come true, but in the long run, we're going to need to do that. We're going to want to do that because if we do make it to the point where we're surviving for tens of thousands of years, Earth's climate goes through natural changes, and we don't want to live through another ice age. People don't realize we've been lucky and that the climate's been very warm and steady throughout the history of our civilization. That won't last. Earth by itself goes through climate changes that on a long time scale will be nasty. So we will want to prevent those, and I think any species that lasts long enough will do climate intervention, and that is something that um, we may not be ready for it, but I think it's good that we're starting to study it.
0: If I interpret the tone of your voice, David, I would say you're kind of upbeat for the long-term future of humanity.
1: Well, I am. I mean, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat. We, we have some very serious threats right now, and the next couple centuries could go one way or another as far as our current civilization and i you know i don't want to be around if our civilization falls apart and you know i think it would be tragic and sad but the species isn't going to die out and we are a civilization building species and a problem-solving communicating species i I just think that if something happens to civilization we'll start again and sooner or later we'll get it right and figure out how to be a long-term entity and last on geologic time scales. So that's another wrinkle on the Anthropocene. People talk about it as a new epoch. It may be that we are actually at the beginning of a new eon, which is the time when sentience, when intelligent life becomes a part of the way the planet operates. And this may be a transition that's as profound as the origin of life or the origin of multicellular life. In which case, by talking about the Anthropocene Epoch, maybe we're thinking too small. Maybe this is actually the beginning of the part of Earth history where sentience has a permanent role.
0: David Grinspoon, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot for having me. Always fun, Seth.
3: David Grinspoon is an astrobiologist and planetary scientist at the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona.
0: I thought it was interesting. pointed out, we're not the first species to make massive changes to the planet. In the cyanobacteria, these little blue-green algae, you know, two and a half billion years ago, they're pumping out all this oxygen, and that wasn't good news for a lot of the other species. I mean, you think of oxygen as a good thing, and it is today because we've adapted to it, but back when the cyanobacteria were putting out this oxygen as their exhaust gas, it was so aggressive, just like it's aggressive in your car, it causes your car to rust, it was killing a lot of the critters on Earth.
3: But it allowed other animals to thrive, humans being just some of those animals.
0: Eventually, we learned how to use oxygen, yeah. It's a better deal, actually. You get more energy if you use oxygen, but it might not have been so obvious two and a half billion years ago.
3: But can you really compare how the cyanobacteria changed our planet? All right, they added oxygen, and that was significant, to how humans have totally transformed the planet. It's not just the chemicals that we put into the the air, but it's... Every facet of Earth has changed because of human influence. Well, that's
0: certainly true. I mean, you know, the cyanobacteria didn't pave over 1% of their continent with asphalt. They didn't use up a lot of the natural resources. They didn't throw tons of plastic into the oceans. They didn't do any of that. So, yeah, this is different. And we're also expanding out into space, something that the cyanobacteria didn't seem uh, interested in doing. So how is the comparison useful? Well, I think that the comparison is only to say that they're— is precedent. So, you know, people who think, oh, there's no way any species could really change Earth.
3: Well, guess what? There is. But David ended on a positive note. He doesn't think that we're doomed. No, we are a creative problem
0: solving species. So he sounded pretty upbeat about the chances that we'll figure a way out of this.
3: After the Apollo 8 astronauts emerged from behind the moon and made a snapshot of Earth rising, their artistic photo quickly became iconic, a reminder that we have but one fragile planet to call home. In 1998, Vice President Al Gore suggested that we beam a continuous live image of Earth from space to boost our environmental awareness. The camera would sit on a satellite in Earth orbit at the first Lagrangian point between the Earth and the moon. It took a while, but the
0: idea for this proposed satellite, Triana, eventually gained traction. And when scientists fitted it out with instrumentation for climate monitoring, it was renamed the Deep Space Climate Observatory. But during the Bush administration, it was dubbed Goresat and scrubbed for lack of funding. The fully assembled spacecraft was mothballed
3: in a warehouse in San Diego for a decade. It's no longer collecting dust. In early February 2015, the Triana, now Discover satellite, was launched from Cape Canaveral and includes additional instrumentation to observe solar weather. Now, he's no longer the principal investigator on the mission, but physicist emeritus Francisco Valero of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California in San Diego says that monitoring Earth's climate is part of our overall adaptation to a changing planet. In particular, keeping track of our radiation budget, how much solar energy falls onto the Earth, and how much remains trapped within our atmosphere. Francisco, well, first, congratulations on the launch of Triana, or the Discover satellite. Were you actually there for the launch?
2: Absolutely, yes, I was there with two of my grandchildren. And the poor kids have heard a lot about Discover since the day they were born. (laughs) so they were extremely excited.
3: I wonder if you were pinching yourself during this launch, because you and I spoke about 10 years ago when this satellite had been mothballed. It was set aside, there wasn't funding for it, and and the prospects for its launch did not look
2: good. Well, I never gave up. I just kept working for these 17 years. I consider it fundamentally important even for humanity since the changes in climate are drivers of of life. So never give up. Uh, That is what got me going through this for 17 years, and I'm so happy to see it go.
3: Well, you and your team were the ones that had the winning pitch for this satellite, as you said, 17 years ago. And the idea was that you would add this climate instrumentation to an idea that was first suggested by Al Gore as a kind of inspirational project. But you made it more than that.
2: And why was it and is it an important satellite? Because at the present time, from direct observations, we do not have and truly accurate as necessary for climate studies, observation, measurements of the radiated budget of the planet. The radiated budget, I always say, is the fundamental driver of climate. Why? Because Earth receives energy from the sun in the form of radiation. This energy is partially reflected back to space, partly absorbed by the system. Then the system uses it for all the climate processes, for life processes, life itself is driven by this energy. Then this energy is converted into heat, into infrared radiation, which is radiated back to space. If the incoming absorbed energy equals the outgoing infrared radiation, you have a balanced system and no long-term change. Now, if you have a positive balance, meaning that more energy is absorbed than is radiated back to space, you have warming, you have heating.
3: Okay, so what the satellite was designed to do, and what it's doing now, is measuring really the Earth's solar radiation balance. The Earth is in a relationship with the sun, where the, the sunlight comes down to Earth, and some of it is absorbed and some of it is bounced back. And the, the purpose of this instrumentation is to give you an idea of, of what that balance is. Are we in equilibrium, or are we absorbing and trapping more heat than we are radiating?
2: Correct. That's exactly it.
3: Well, Francisco, you know, 20 years ago or so, 15 years ago, it seems that these measurements would have been really important. But now, enough time has passed. We understand that the climate is changing. We understand, in fact, there are measurements now of the atmosphere, temperature going up, the temperature of the oceans going up. So why do we still need to monitor? Because some people would say we're in the era now of adaptation. What we should do is, and it's already happening, we need to adjust to the changes that are already upon us.
2: Well, we as scientists, most of us, I am one of them, agree that things are changing. No question about that. But what we need is a more accurate evaluation of the energy that is being involved in this in order to be able to determine future policy. What is that we have to do as humans to protect our planet and ourselves from any potential catastrophic changes? Now, One thing that we have to make clear is that we have to look at the long-term averages. You have probably heard many places, oh, it's snow in New York, what is the global warming? You know, all of these things don't make much sense in my mind. What is important is the global long-term average, and that's what we're after.
3: Can you give us a specific example of how monitoring this radiation balance is going to help say, a farmer, uh, someone living in a city, someone living alongside a river, how it is going to help us adapt to the changes that are coming?
2: Well, if you know that you are in the process of warming or cooling, you will have the farmer will have to adjust his crops to whatever is compatible with the new situation. But first, you know, and I go back to my phone, first you have to understand the process. You have to know accurately what the process is. So you can do, you can plan. Without that, how can you, you know, predict? And that's what we want to do. 25 years from now, this is what is going to happen. And that is what's going to give the farmer the ability to change his ways. But imagine that change is not going to be uniform. In some regions things can change in some way, in other regions can change in another way. You might even have the atmospheric circulation changing. You will have the trajectory of storms changing because the driver of things changing. The changes in Iowa may be completely different than the changes in Alaska. And you want to know what's going to happen to the farmer or the fisherman in Alaska and what's going to happen to the farmer in Iowa.
3: Now, the satellite sits at an orbital spot known as the Lagrange point. What is the Lagrange point, and why is this an
2: ideal spot for observing Earth? At L1, is a point between the sun and the Earth. A light body at that point, and orbiting the sun at the same speed as the Earth, that is the same angular velocity as the Earth, that is, tracking the Earth continuously in one straight line, will keep in an orbit. That means that the centrifugal force generated by the speed of the Earth in the orbit around the Sun equals the attraction of the Sun. So it's an stable point. It will keep an orbit around the Sun together with the Earth. So you will have the Earth in plain view all the time in a straight line between the Sun and the Earth.
3: Is it only scientists that will be able to see these these images
2: of Earth? No. The point here is that these images that are not a TV image, what we have are spectral channels, that is, narrow band pass, say, in colors, from the ultraviolet to the visible regions. Small channels to study ozone, to look at the aerosols, water vapor content. Imagine, all of these are components that go into a numerical model to predict what we were talking about before. And then from these channels, combining red, green, and blue channels, we can build up an image. And that's the way these images are built.
3: But will they be images that everyone can see? See,
2: absolutely. Absolutely.
3: So finally, Francisco, do you think that these images, and I know I'm, I'm coming back to this because this is how the story got started almost 20 years ago, do you think that they can have the sort of effect that the famous Earth rise image had in that as an inspiration to future environmentalists and actually just future
2: citizens of Earth to take care of their home. Imagine, you excite the imagination of of young people. And somehow we make very smart young people these days. And on science... All it takes is to wake up your curiosity. Once you become curious about it, you are a scientist. (laughs) If you work on these things, because nothing can stop you. You are authentically curious. You want to know. You want the knowledge. You want to know the truth about it. Uh, So that is the basis of this inspiration.
3: Well, Francisco Valero, congratulations again on on the launch, long time coming, of this satellite. And thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Oh, Molly, thank you
0: very much. Francisco Valero is an emeritus physicist and research scientist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San
3: Diego. Coming up, stories of those who are not waiting around but are already adapting to our changing planet. We're surviving the Anthropocene on Big Picture Science.
5: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: Science journalist, Gaia Vince reminds us that the Anthropocene is not defined solely by the changes we've made to the climate, but to the sum of all those wreaked upon our home planet. In the introduction to her book, Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made, she summarizes the situation.
4: We are an incredible force of nature. Humans have the power to heat the planet further or to cool it right down, to eliminate species and to engineer entirely new ones, to re-sculpt the terrestrial surface and to determine its biology. No part of this planet is untouched by human influence. We have transcended natural cycles, altered the physical, chemical and biological processes of the planet. We can create new life in a test tube, bring extinct species back from the dead, grow new body parts from cells or build mechanical replacements. We have invented robots to be our slaves, computers to extend our brains and a new ecosystem of networks with which to communicate. We have shifted our own evolutionary pathway with medical advances that saved those who would naturally die in infancy. We are supernatural. We can fly without wings and dive without gills. We can survive killer diseases and be resuscitated after death. We are the only species to leave the planet and visit our moon.
3: Gaia Vince recently did her own travel for the book, leaving her UK home and visiting remote places around the world to collect examples of small communities who are not waiting for governments to provide solutions to climate change. For example, she met a man in Nepal who, as his country's glaciers melt away, has figured out through trial and error how to build his own artificial glaciers.
0: Gaia Vince is hopeful that we humans will not only survive the new era, but thrive, We are adapting, even while we leave evidence of our civilization's excesses and poor stewardship in the rock strata for future anthropologists to find millions of years from now.
4: A million years from now, we will see signs of these big changes. For example, if you take our effect on biodiversity, the fact that certain animals are going extinct, maybe the Sumatran rhino, for example, that's an animal which will no longer have a genetic legacy. The DNA has run out there. That's it. That's the end of that branch. That's the end of the tree. But it would also be found in the rocks that there were rhino bones, and then suddenly they stopped. No more rhino bones. The same with, say, coral reefs, which are expected to be the first ecosystem to go extinct.
3: And there would be all these other man-made elements, I mean, chemicals, plastics, and so forth.
4: Yeah, exactly. Things like an aluminium drinks can or aluminum, as you call it in in the States. That's something which doesn't exist naturally. It's an element, but we have created it.
3: Gaia, your book isn't about wringing your hands in despair about these changes, but about illustrating the many examples of ingenuity that are being undertaken by groups that are trying to adjust to this new climate reality and to the Anthropocene. And you actually quit your job as a journalist to travel, often by foot. Can you give us an overview of where you went?
4: Well, I went to more than 40 countries. I got a one-way ticket to Kathmandu and then traveled through Asia, through Southeast Asia, then through sub-Saharan Africa, East and Central, and then uh, through the Americas, from the bottom of Patagonia up to uh, the U.S., I concentrated mainly on the global south, primarily because that's where our global changes are affecting people in the most extreme way. I mean, that's where the biggest concentration of people are. It's where the biggest change is occurring and planetary change and also societal change. And I think that's really important because, you know, how the poor get rich around the planet will strongly shape the Anthropocene, the the trajectory of where we're going. You write, and in fact,
3: one of the themes of your book is that humans have this choice between using up resources and maintaining the status quo or self-determination. And you found a lot of examples of the latter, of self-determination. I wonder if you could just give an example in which people who are are not governments or, or elites are finding ways to adapt to a changing climate.
4: Well so that is something that astonished me, that the remarkable ingenuity of of ordinary people. For example, as the temperature of the earth warms, glaciers are melting. So for example, in in Ladakh, which is a region of the Himalayas squashed in Tibet between Pakistan, China and India, they rely entirely on glacial meltwater for their crop irrigation and without it they migrate to the cities and the glaciers are disappearing. They're disappearing very fast there. And I met this incredible guy, this retired railway worker, who was single-handedly building artificial glaciers and completely transforming the lives of his community, this Ladakhi indigenous community.
3: The man that you met, um, Norful. I believe his name is? Yes. Okay. He was able to achieve this in a pretty low-tech way, wasn't he? Um, he would channel and, and block precipitation that would otherwise flow away and then channel it so that it would freeze somewhere else, and he would have, you know, not presto, but instant glacier. Uh, can you describe how this actually works? It's, it's remarkable
4: yeah as as you said he built channels in the shadows of mountains so that in the months where the sun didn't rise high enough to shine directly on the rocks those areas were dipped and they were, the precipitation was slowed so that it became frozen so that it became an artificial glacier essentially i mean it's not of the same scale it's not of the same longevity as a natural glacier but it does the job you know and then as the sun rises higher at sowing season when they need the water the glacier melts so it provides this essential water that's stopping this community from disappearing and he's built more than 10 now i mean these are the sorts of initiatives which if they were backed by a more concerted effort could completely transform areas we're either going to have to build really expensive reservoirs or we're going to have to somehow lower the Earth's temperature in order for the glaciers to return or we're going to have to use this as a stopgap, this temporary artificial glacier method. Well, I wonder if you
3: could give another example, because what is remarkable about many of these solutions is that they do seem to be low-tech. Many are driven by just one person who took the initiative. And in the case of, I think it was Nepal, where a whole village was wired with the Internet, which astounded you because you walked into a room that would have been impressive had it been in, in London, and here it was you know, in the middle of this village on this mountaintop. Can, can you describe that and then why that is an important change, and how that can combat the changes to the climate that are coming.
4: Yeah, so so I walked, I climbed for um, a, a few days into a fairly remote part of the the Nepalese Himalayas um, with this incredible guy, Mahabir Pun. he's called, he who's a former teacher. To find this village, which didn't have... Electricity didn't have telephone connection, didn't have anything really, and opened the schoolroom door, and they were all sitting there on the internet, chit-chatting away across classrooms. and and it was completely astonishing to me. And this again, is this one revolutionary person who just imported a um, home Wi-Fi kit from the us and was able never mind that nepal's been in protracted civil war essentially for a couple of decades and where just ordinary tasks have become almost impossible where there's no electricity supply across swathes of the country at any one time he's managed to wire up these villages by using these kind of on-top-of-the-mountains point-to-point masts where they just, you know, the atmosphere is thinner there anyway. And he's actually wired them up to um, Kathmandu and then, of course, to the rest of the world. And, and once you have that communication, it means that, it means that your world doesn't stop at the village perimeter. That's what drives human inventiveness. That's what drives this incredible power that humans have had now. Can you
3: say more about how being wired, how this village, this remote village being wired and connected to the outside world will help it prepare for the changes that are coming in the Anthropocene
4: well so for example instead of instead of being cut off from from the rest of their nation let alone the rest of the world and and living as their parents lived or their grandparents lived the children are learning from the internet school they have uh, improved health because they have telemedicine so they can they use a sort of a form of Skype essentially over the internet phone calls they can communicate around the world. They can they can ask for things they need. They're connected to markets. They can sell their yak produce, and get money, which they can then invest in electricity or energy. They can they can plan for a future. They can contribute to part of this great humanity superorganism. They they they're, they're all connected, and I think being connected is. Is fundamental it's what's it's what's changed us we, we we are now a much more global community we're not a series of villagers living in in the past
3: you discovered stories like this uh, all over the world in in Africa too and and China but I wonder if changes at the local level no matter how inventive if you don't have the backing of a government and of nations are they really enough to overcome the forces that are coming I mean you could wire up you know, the Maldives, they could be very connected to the outside world, but when that sea level rises, you may not be able to save those islands.
4: That's true. I mean, we're going to lose a lot of islands, and unfortunately, we're also going to lose a lot of people, but, you know, it's not a given that everyone's going to. Drown in sea level rise, or that that we're all going to starve because of crop failure. It's not a given. You know, we still have so many choices. We have so many ways of doing things. We're learning ways of doing things now. Yes, there's an there's a huge role for government. As to date, it's been incredibly slow. The change driven by government has been incredibly slow. In some countries, it's better than others. You know, people people haven't been sitting there waiting, going, "Well, well I wonder when there's going to be some sort of international agreement." I mean so some of the examples I put in my book are some of the more sort of interesting or extreme ones but people are doing it for themselves they they have to
3: Gaia Vince is a journalist living in the UK she is the author of Adventures in the Anthropocene a journey to the heart of the planet we made Gaia thank you so much for speaking with us
4: It's been great thanks Molly <laughs>
3: Thanks to our fully anthropic production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
0: Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute where scientists study the origin and nature of life.
3: And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to surviving the Anthropocene. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you can find more episodes in our archive on our website, bigpicturescience.org. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer
0: over-the-air radio because on this planet, only the human species has developed radio, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion, or even some faint praise, email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org.